I invite you to please rise for the call to worship. The call to worship this morning is from Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, how good and gracious and wonderful you are. You are great, all-powerful, all-knowing. Your understanding is beyond measure. Father, we pray that you would continue to grow us and guide us in your love and your truth and your grace. We pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be high and lifted up. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we would give you all praise, glory, and honor. In Christ's glorious name, amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I invite you to sing with me number 212. Come thou almighty king.
You may be seated. For our time of confession and pardon, I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 5. I'll first be reading Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, leading us in a prayer of confession and pronouncing the pardon for those who trust and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, your goodness and love. We thank you for your faithfulness. Oh, Father, your faithfulness is beyond comprehension. You are good. Everything you do is perfect and right. So, Father, again, we want to come and humble ourselves before you to confess those sins of thought, word, and action over this last week. Father, we want to confess to you those times where we did not rejoice in suffering. We want to confess to you those times where we did not endure according to the Spirit, but we fell back into the ways of our old flesh. Father, we want to confess to you those times where our character displayed more about pride and rebellion than a sincere trust in you and your word. And Father, we want to confess to you those times where we placed our hope in things other than your word, your will, and your purpose in our lives. Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit continues to lead and guide and grow us in the faith. So, Father, at this time, we want to confess to you those sins of thought, word, and action. We confess these to you now in our hearts and in our minds.
Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <coughs> Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Know this, that if you trust and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are forgiven. You have been pardoned. Your sin has been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And you have peace with your heavenly Father, who loves you dearly. In Christ's glorious name, amen. I invite you to read with me our Confession of Faith. Our Confession of Faith this morning is from Article 9, The Fulfillment of God's Plan. This plan, arising out of God's eternal love for his chosen ones, from the beginning of the world to the present time, has been powerfully carried out and will also be carried out in the future. The gates of hell seeking vainly to prevail against it. As a result, the chosen are gathered into one, all in their own time. And there is always a church of believers founded on Christ's blood, a church which steadfastly loves, persistently worships, and here and in all eternity, praises him as her Savior, who laid down his life for her on the cross as a bridegroom for his bride. Let us go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. Again, we're amazed that, that you so love the world that you gave your only begotten Son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Oh, Father, that you would place the sins of those who would be brought to repentance and faith on your Son, that, that he would satisfy your holy just wrath on behalf of your elect. Oh, Father, we are amazed by such love. Father, we thank you. Father, we pray that you would remind us that if while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, how much more now that we've been raised to new life will you grow and guide and lead us to give you all glory, praise, and honor. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that your son is a good shepherd and that he leads and guides us in the way. 
Father, we thank you for your continued care. We pray, O oh Lord, that, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will continue to enable us to live more and more according to the Spirit and less and less according to our old fallen flesh. Oh, Father, we pray for the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would grow us in love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh, Father, we do pray for, for our families. Father, we pray that you would strengthen and guide be with our families here. Father, we pray that you would help parents to teach and instruct their children in your way and your love and your truth. Father, we pray for the children to, to look to you, that you would draw and call them, that they would know you and your love and seek to serve you with their lives. Father, we pray for the marriages represented here. Oh, Father, we pray that they would represent Ephesians chapter 5, Christ and the church. Father, we thank you that your son Jesus Christ continues to wash us in the word so that we would be spotless and without blemish at his return. Father, we pray for our church body. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would strengthen us Help us to be of one heart and one mind. Help us to strive side by side for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, crucified. <coughs> oh, Father, we pray for unity, to be of one heart and one mind. Father, we're absolutely dependent on you. We pray that you'd grow us in our love for you and our love for one another, forgiving one another, bearing with one another, sacrificing, serving one another, building each other up in your love and in your truth, correcting, rebuking, exhorting one another with all patience and love. Oh, Father, we pray that you would grow us in the understanding of what it is that we are a member of the body of your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that you continue to grow us in this truth. Father, we do pray that you would Continue to be with the trustee family. Father, we pray for all the children, grandchildren, friends who were here at the memorial yesterday. Oh, Father, we pray in particular for those who do not know you. Oh, Father, we pray that through the proclamation of the gospel, through your word being spoken, that, oh, Lord, you would call and draw, that you'd give eyes to see and ears to hear. So, Father, we just... Lift that up to you for your will, your purpose to be done. Father, we do pray that you would continue to strengthen us. Father, we do pray that you would be with our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world. Those who are facing tremendous persecution and opposition. Father, we pray for the church in Iran and in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ caught up in the midst of being refugees and in the midst of the warfare in the Ukraine. Oh, Father, we pray for peace. We pray for wisdom. Father, we pray for 
Reverend Mihai and other churches in Romania and also Poland who are taking in these refugee families. Father, we pray that you would use them mightily to reach out and to build up your people in this most difficult time. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are always faithful. Father, we pray for we pray for the United States of America. Oh Lord, that your light would shine. Father, we pray for our president and his administration. We pray for our governor and we pray for local county commissioners and leaders. Father, we pray for wisdom and guidance. We pray for peace. Father, we pray that in the midst of all these things, that you would fix our eyes on things above and not things below. Remind us, O Lord, that we are pilgrims and that we are not home on this earth. Father, we pray that you would grow our longing and desire for the heavenly kingdom, for the new heaven, new earth, for the return of your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would fix our eyes on on your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we do continue to pray for Wendy's mother. Father, we pray for continued healing and strength as she recovers from from her, her hip surgery. Oh, Father, we pray that you'd be with her. We pray also for Dee Dee and for Andy. Father, we pray as she continues with her treatments. Oh, Lord, we pray that their eyes be directed to you. Father, we continue to thank you and rejoice how, how you continue to be a fortress and strength to Grace, to Marcia. Father, we thank you how you hold them in your righteous right hand. And Father, we pray that you would just continue to use us to be ministers of reconciliation. Oh, Father, we pray for the lost whether they be family members, friends, someone who you will bring into our life in the coming days. Father, you give us opportunities to lift up your gospel and your word. So, Father, we pray that you would help us, guide us. Oh, Father, we pray. We pray in particular, oh, Lord, for those family members. Father, we pray that Not only would you enable us to share the gospel, but you'd bring others into their lives to lift up your son, Jesus Christ, crucified. So, Father, we just cry out. Only you can bring the dead alive. Father, we thank you. It is because of your grace, mercy, and love that we say the prayer that our Savior taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to please rise. And read with me our passage of Scripture. We're continuing to look at John as we are leading up to Easter. 
And this morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 11, starting at verse 45. John 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Living and active, breathed out by you. All authoritative and all sufficient. Oh, Father, we pray that you would lead us and guide us in the truth. We are absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit for discernment and wisdom. Oh, Father, we pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be high and lifted up. For to believe in him is to have eternal life. In Christ's glorious name, amen. You may be seated. Well, at this time, I'd like to invite if there are any children who'd like to, if you want to come up to the front row here. Excellent. Good morning. Good morning. Now, this is an interesting thing. Who would you be willing to die for? Who would you be willing to die for? Okay, very good. Be willing to die for Jesus. Who would be be willing to die for? Yeah, for God. Very good. How about you? Yeah, for God. Very good. So yeah, so you have this understanding. We're going to look at that later in our, our passage. That's going to come out. So scripture talks about this. Paul says in Romans that hardly ever, scarcely would someone die for another person. Because we can be very selfish people. So, but there may be a rare exception that someone may actually die for a very good person or someone that you're very close for. But then the Apostle Paul says this, this is how amazing God's love is, is that while we are still sinners, while we are still 
enemies with God. While we still hate God, God sends his son to die for those who would believe and trust in him. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus would die for someone who doesn't want to have anything to do with him. So that's when we look at this passage. Because in this passage, it talks about Jesus dying, one man dying for the people of God. So I want you to think about that. And then, as you guys rightly said, we are then called to give our lives for Christ. So that's, that's, that's our response of gratitude. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, goodness, and love. Father, again, we are amazed that you so love the world that your son would die. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In Christ's glorious name, amen. Amen. You guys head back to your seats. So we are working our way through these key passages in John to lead up to the great moment of Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. So we're first looking at the resurrection of Lazarus, which is pointing us to the ultimate resurrection of Christ and all those who are in Christ. So again, where we're looking at this morning is we are in chapter 11, and we are picking up at verse 45, where we left off last time. So John 11, starting at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, that's speaking of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. Now that's our key word of this section of scripture. That's our key word of this pericope. It's believe, believe. That's what everything has to do with. And that's going to be John's focus from now on in the gospel of John is that key word, believe. So again, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. If you go to the next chapter in John, you'll see how this belief just continued to spread and spread and spread. If you look at John chapter 12, starting at verse 9, you see the effects of this. And this is one thing to realize. Palm Sunday, Jesus' glorious entrance into Jerusalem it's John that explains the reason why so many people were gathered around Jesus and entered in with the palms and laid their clothes down in that was because they were already with him because of raising Lazarus from the dead. How you got that crowd was because of Lazarus being raised. So that's all part of it. So that's the part of what's going on here. So John chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, 
I mean, you got to see this guy. This is someone who's dead now. He's alive. Whom he had raised from the dead. Verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see this again if you go to verse 17 of John 12. So again, this is this what's taking place here. John 12, verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So this is the most desperate fear of the Pharisees. They are losing their power, their control, their opportunity to be over these people. They're losing everything of their earthly desires and earthly kingdom. So that this is desperation is what's being expressed here. And you see that again, John 11, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So now you see in verse 47, the beginning of this desperation that just keeps increasing through chapter 12, all the way to when Jesus is crucified. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is what ultimately brings about Jesus's death. That's, that's how the events play out. So John eleven forty seven. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. That's their greatest fear. But now, in the last part of verse 48, you see why that is too much for them, for everyone to believe in Jesus. It's, it's the last part here. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Our place and our nation. What takes place there in those verses, it exposes what truly was the kingdom, what truly was the focus and the desire of the scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders. It was their earthly life, their earthly kingdom. It was the things of this world, not the things of God. You ultimately see this played out when they hand Jesus over to Pilate. If you go to John chapter 19, you see how this plays out. When they express this fear that, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation if we allow Jesus to continue being so popular, here you have this powerful moment in John 19. This, this to me gets at the heart of this struggle and this issue here. John 19, starting at verse 10. This is when Jesus is before Pilate. 
So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. See, Pilate, is he's afraid of Jesus. This becomes very clear in the text. To release him, but the Jews cried out. Now, here's the key phrase. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. So Pilate just keeps insisting. This is your king. This is the king of the Jews. Verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. That's the moment. That's the moment. So when you see them with these plans and deliberations here, again, in John 11, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Because of the hardness of hearts, the blindness of eyes, because they were living according to presumption and self-exaltation and believing in self-righteousness made them right with God. Their nation was an earthly one. It was an earthly kingdom. And that passes away. So because of that, Jesus was a threat to their earthly power and kingdom. They make a plan. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So again, that word believe, believe, you see where it's so dominant in chapter 11, you see where it's so dominant in chapter 12. Well, you want to go back to the key moment where this word is first lifted up in the Gospel of John leading up to this moment, it's John 9. So if you go back to John 9, you have this scene where you have the man who was born blind. And Jesus heals him. Jesus heals him, but he doesn't know who heals him. He doesn't actually see Jesus until Jesus in the end comes to him and makes clear who he was. So Jesus heals him and he goes away and the man... 
And the scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders are incensed that this man would lift up Jesus because they're trying to get rid of Jesus. So ultimately, in John 9, Jesus comes to him because the Pharisees have kicked him out of the synagogue. They have thrown him out. So for the Jews in Jerusalem during the time, that would be to be excommunicated, removed from any possibility of being right with God. So in their mind, they threw him away. And that's when Jesus comes to him in that moment. And Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah. And this is the the blind man who now sees response, John 9, 38. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become Blind. So this is his statement. Again, John 9, 39. For judgment I came to this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? The Pharisees did have a gift of understanding when Jesus was indicting them. They did pick that up. So they're picking it. They rightly understand that Jesus is indicting them. And said to them, are we also blind? Verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see your guilt remains. Ultimately, what takes place in John chapter 9 is you have a man who was born blind, who his whole life was a beggar, who is considered less than and eventually thrown out of the synagogue because he trusted and believed in Jesus bringing about this healing and lifted him up as someone who had to be from God. And Jesus says, this man who is blind, he can now see. He's been given the gift of faith, the gift of belief. And how do we know that? Again, John 9, 38, he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. That's it. That's what true belief produces. To truly confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, which is what Roman 10 says, to be saved, to to believe in your heart that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for my sins, that on the cross he satisfied the holy just wrath that I deserve, that on the cross he has made me right and his righteousness has been given to me because my sin has been placed on him. To believe that and trust that And to confess that, that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, that's what Romans 10 says, that's that's salvation. That's true salvation. And we see that that produces worship. A life of gratitude and praise and glorifying God. So that's what we see taking place here. 
But the Pharisees were unwilling to believe and worship because Jesus says, because they thought they saw, they were blind. And what he's getting at there is their presumption and pride rather than humble repentance and belief. In Romans 10, it speaks about this. Romans 10, starting at verse 2, you see the Apostle Paul, he makes this powerful statement that directly speaks to that saying where Jesus says, those who are blind will see, those who see or think they see will be made blind. It's Romans 10, starting at the last part of verse 2. Speaking of the unbelieving Jews, like the Pharisees, scribes, religious leaders, we're we're seeing in John 12, John 11, and John 9, Romans 10, last part of verse 2, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. That's it. That's what Jesus says when he says, those who do not see will see. Those who understand through the power of the Holy Spirit that they have no righteousness of their own, that they are helpless and hopeless, that, that, that all they deserve is God's holy, just wrath and punishment, that, that God will give them eyes to see the glory of his son, crucified, buried, resurrected on their behalf. But for those who see, for those who look at themselves and say, look at my righteousness. Look how right I am with God. Look at all these things I've accomplished for God. That's what we see here in Romans 10. Again, Romans 10, 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. That's the key. They do not submit to God's righteousness. So what we're seeing in John 9, John 11, looking at Lazarus, and John 12, and Lord willing, as we look at Jesus' crucifixion on Good Friday and resurrection on Easter, all in the Gospel of John, the whole focus here is, are we willing to submit to the righteousness of God? To submit. To submit to the righteousness of God is to acknowledge that I have no righteousness of my own. That I am absolutely dependent on Jesus Christ for all my righteousness, all my holiness, my right standing with God. He is who I boast in. He alone. I have nothing to boast in. I I can do nothing. I am helpless and hopeless apart from him. That's the submitting to the righteousness of Christ. And that's what Romans 10, 4 says. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Believes. That's it. So if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus Christ is Lord, because the Holy Spirit has made you alive, given you the gifts of repentance and faith, 
and you see the spirit at work in you, growing you in worship of God and seeking to give him all glory, praise and honor in your life, you see the the work of God in your life. So again, if we look back at John 11, Caiaphas, and our text says it isn't because he had a right understanding of these things, but God, because of his office as high priest, God enabled him to say what was true. Even though Caiaphas didn't understand what he was saying. For Caiaphas, it's better that one man die so that we can retain our special status with Rome, that we can still have our temple and and our nation and, and our grip on the people. And Jesus will take that all away if, if he gets popular. So that's what he means by what he's saying. But we see in the text here, what God is displaying is that Jesus will die. And what's powerful about this is we see the Gentiles in our text. And if you look down again, verse 51, he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, what we understand about that is that's the ultimate fulfillment in all the prophecy of Isaiah, that Jesus will not only be the signal for the elect of the Jews, but also the elect of every tribe, nation, language, people. That the light will shine forth in the darkness and that the people of God, the household of God, the Israel of God will be the church, the elect of every tribe, nation, language, and people. We see this again and again in our text. And again, if you go to Romans 11, you see where the Apostle Paul is giving us interpretation of this teaching. We have the scribes, Pharisees, and religious leaders making decisions based on the desires of their flesh, based on the things of this world, based on the deception of the devil. That's that's how they're operating. Now, God and his sovereignty is bringing this about. God does not sin or cause anyone to sin. God is sovereign. They are responsible for their sin. And for them, they have to kill Jesus to retain their nation, their power, their privilege. What's amazing is come 70 AD, it's all destroyed anyway. You can't thwart the will of God. Not a stone is left standing on the temple. It's destroyed. That's over. There is no more earthly temple. The temple that remains are the people of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's that's where this is taking us. So Romans 11, verse 25 
Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this is this gathering all the children of God. Romans eleven twenty six, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. This is what Peter does. Peter talks about the church where there is no longer a Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, Greek, male or female when it comes to all the promises of the gospel and the truth of the work of Christ on the cross. That he refers to it, the church as the Israel of God. So that's what we see being spoken of here. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What's amazing is they're trying to kill Jesus to keep their nation from perishing when in actuality God sends his son to die so that those who believe in him would not perish. See the amazing reality of that? That's, that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life, true life, eternal life, life in God's purpose, plan, and will. We see ultimately in Ephesians 2 where it speaks of this gathering in of Jew and Gentile, all the children of God, because Christ tears down the dividing wall of hostility. That's Ephesians 2, starting at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's speaking of the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. One body, one head, one church, one family, one household of God, one temple indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what's being spoken of at the end of our passage today. Ephesians 2.16, it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. There it is. That's the nation I want to be a part of. That's the eternal nation. That's the eternal kingdom. It's that one right there. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's it. That's Christ's eternal kingdom. That's the heavenly kingdom. That's the heavenly nation. That's where Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. 
and all his people worship him in spirit and truth. Verse 20 of Ephesians 2, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Ultimately, what we find the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders trying to do is they're trying to keep their earthly life, but it's going to perish. They're trying to hold on to their earthly world, but it's going to perish. Only in Jesus can one have eternal life and not perish. That's the whole focus of this text. And how do you do that? Believe, trust, confess, worship. That's what John's laying out for us here. That's why Hebrews 12, verse 28 speaks of this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the kingdom we need. In Mark 8, Jesus made clear. In Mark 8, 34, Jesus taught this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Ooh, now that's a tough. Deny himself. What, what he's talking about is dying to yourself. Dying to my will, my way, my time. That's literally what that's saying. Dying to yourself. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. That's talking about a continual crucifixion. Again, we're dying to ourselves. We're denying ourselves and we're dying to ourselves. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, that's what the scribes, Pharisees, and religious leaders were trying to do. Save their earthly life. Save their earthly power. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, have mercy. The kids know this verse. So who you die to? They all said they die for Jesus. This is it. This is the verse. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. That's it. Verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. It's no profit. No profit. So again, John chapter 11, this whole focus of Lazarus is, is displaying to us Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the only source of eternal life, the only source of true eternal peace, true eternal hope, True eternal security. All other ground is sinking sand. There's only one rock 
And that's Jesus Christ, our fortress and our strength. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of believing in your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that you will help us to confess. Help us to worship. Help us to give you all praise, glory, and honor. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to deny ourselves. Help us, O Lord, to pick up our cross. Help us, O Lord, to to put our old flesh to death daily as it wages war against us. And Father, we pray that you would fix our eyes on your Son, Jesus Christ, and our hope in his eternal kingdom. In Christ's glorious name, amen. I invite you to please rise and sing with me number 171, a word of God incarnate. Oh, we. Yeah.
receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I invite you to close with me with the doxology.